Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Years ago, Jen and I were living in L.A., and worked at a church uh, just outside, kind of East LA, inner city. Um, and my first job there, before I was ever a youth pastor or anything, was I was uh, worked the grounds there as a janitor. And I remember one day I was there with a couple other guys who were all working the grounds, and uh, and we were in the parking lot, and all of a sudden this van flies into the parking lot. Um, and we all look over and the door swings open and this girl uh, gets out of the van while a guy reaches and tries to pull her back into the van. She's screaming, he's angry, and we're probably a hundred yards away in this parking lot. And um, I just started running towards the van. And as, as I'm running towards the van, into attempt to help whatever is going on with the situation I um, as I'm running I'm like what am I going to do when I get there Um, what if this guy has a gun or a knife Um, and I remember just kind of making this decision that I'm just like I'm just going to keep running and I just ran towards this and I start yelling at the guy he sees me tries one more attempt to pull this uh, woman back into the van and then they the van drives away and the woman is there outside the van and me and my friends come up and, and make sure she's okay and up calling the police and um, and it was in this this moment I remember my my friend who was working with me just he's like what was your plan I'm like I don't think I had a plan I just there was something within me um, in you know I'm not I'm not the strapping athletic build you see before you today I was uh, pretty even just smaller and probably more timid even in my attitude but there's just something that came over me like this can't happen and I think that there's something within every single human being that when presented with a situation um, a headline a story that there's something within us that compels us to move towards that and and I I I believe that this is because we have been formed and created in the image of, of God who creates good, beautiful, orderly things. And when we see that good and beautiful and orderly um, state disrupted and corroded, there's something that in our divine dignity wants to move towards that to bring restoration. Whether it was this situation like I was in, whether it's a cause that you are a part of, whether it's injustice that you see or hear about, um, there is something that is naturally, probably rather supernaturally compelled within us to move towards us. And that's what the biblical writers describe as justice and mercy. I think before we dive into kind of framing that today as our last installment of the series of Future Church, uh, we are called to be a community of justice and mercy in a culture of brokenness. Um, that unfortunately, something as pure as justice and mercy, still we live in a culture that likes to divide that 
um, likes to pit that against each other or somehow make, well, these issues are issues that we want to be concerned with, but those issues belong to the other side. And to be honest, it just, for me, that just is so indicative of the, just the assignment of the enemy to want to take something that is so close to the heart of God and then to assign that and segment that into different arenas to make some things kind of hand off. So let me just give you an example. The opening sermon of this series, we just talked about um, just the early church and recapturing what God was doing there. And Larry Hurtado, who's a professor at the University of Baylor, um, has this really incredible book called The Destroyer of the Gods, where he kind of maps out the rise of early Christianity in Rome. And he identifies five things that were... uh, that defined the early church. And these are the five things. Number one, they were multiracial and multi-ethnic. This is a religion that was not based on geographical location or ethnic heritage. It was inclusive of anyone who had come to faith in Jesus, which meant that it was made up of different backgrounds, different ethnicities. The second thing that defined it was highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized, where in a, in a culture that was built around classes, you see these early followers of Jesus moving towards the marginalized, moving towards the poor. Number three, they had a non-retaliatory stance marked by commitment to forgiveness, meaning that when people came towards them violently, they wouldn't respond violently, but many of them would lose their lives with dignity, often praying for their enemies who were killing them. Number four, they strongly and practically were against abortion and infanticide, Um, not just as a political stance, but they quite literally, where there would be children sacrificed uh, to gods or abandoned on hills as some sort of strange, primitive sacrifice to their gods, Christians were known to go and rescue these children who often were disabled or were not the gender that parents wanted and to bring them and graft them into the family of God and into the early church. And number five, they had a revolutionizing, uh, a revolutionary sexual ethic, um, where in a culture that was highly oppressive and misogynist and uh, used sex as a way for power, largely for, for men over women and even children, um, this is where the sexual ethic of Jesus came into place, that there was this idea of selflessness, um, that our bodies didn't even belong to us, but belonged to God. And I, the reason I bring up all of these things is it seems, uh, like I, I mentioned the first kind of opening sermon, that these have kind of been divided in half between the left and the right, the conservatives and progressives, as these are our causes. You have a value for um, diversity and, and, and speaking out against racism and things about the poor and the marginalized, that largely the left has waved their flags. These are our issues. And then you have issues of of abortion and the sanctity of life and um, and the preservation of the family and the the sexual ethic of Jesus that the right are waving their flag and these are our issues and I think that for us is understanding that first and foremost we need to see the world around us through a gospel lens and not a political lens. We need to see the world around us through a kingdom agenda and not a cultural agenda Uh, which means the things that we're going to be talking about today, there may be moments that trigger in your mind, oh, that's 
that's an issue that this side cares about. And I would strongly encourage you just to rethink, and even if that's true, to ask ourselves the question, is this an issue that Jesus cares about, that the Bible speaks directly towards? And we, by the way, this is not like an American problem, this like divisive thing, even in Jesus' day. Um, in Mark 9, John says, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. And in John's framework, similar to ours and just kind of our human makeup, is we we think that the good work of God needs to also simultaneously mean that that belongs to a certain tribe. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Let's recognize the work of God as the work of God and let's encourage and promote that. You see, there's some people, um, and I'm borrowing this language from Mark Sayers, who's a sociologist in Australia. He says, some people want the kingdom without the king. Where we have in our culture people who, who value justice or social justice or social reform so highly that it kind of operates as a functional savior. That this is what will save us. If we finally speak loudly enough and, and act intentionally enough about injustice. And there's, um, in a lot of cases, a very little regard for the motivation behind that and idea of where Jesus fits in the middle of that. Thaddeus Williams, in his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, says, If we make social justice our first thing, we will lose not only the first thing, the gospel, we will lose social justice too. Justice is not the first thing the gospel is, but that does not make justice optional to the Christian life. When the gospel is not our first thing, social justice becomes something else entirely. And this whole thing is that we can't want the kingdom without the king. But there's another group that some people want the king without the kingdom. Where we kind of have a movement that just talks about, well, it's just Jesus or it's just theology. And um, and we don't want to get mixed up in that stuff because then we come, uh, because it becomes work-based or becomes a social gospel or this thing, or we become aligned with progressive agenda or things like that. And, and I think that we can't want the king and have the king without his kingdom. And N.T. Wright points this out um, in actually several of his books, that if you take out uh, if you were to define the gospel, many of us would talk about the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the glorification. It's in the creeds. It's what we sing about. Jesus came to earth, died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and ascended to glory. He says if you took that, you would literally um, cut out half of the gospels um, in a literary sense. That most of the gospels aren't just describing Jesus' birth death and resurrection they're describing his life and his life largely was spent on behalf of the poor and the marginalized those who are outside a matter of fact the old testament one out of every 10 verses has to do with our relationship to the poor and the down and out in luke's gospel it's one out of every six this is core to the framework 
So come on, this is why when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says, this is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the entirety of Jesus's framework for his ministry, his prayer life, was this idea that the kingdom of heaven, the order of heaven, should infiltrate the systems of this world, the people of this world, that we need to usher in the kingdom of God. This is right, um, why an N.T. writes in his book, Surprised by Hope, says, Our task in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day, with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission, as a sign of the first and the foretaste of the second. So here's what I'd like to do do for the next few minutes is I want us to give us a, a biblical framework for our our response to how we live into justice and mercy. And my hope is that for those who are new to faith in Jesus would recognize how this is not a um, a construct of our culture. This is not even a political agenda. This is deeply embedded into our theology of who God is. Um, and also my hope is for those who already understand who Jesus is and been following Jesus for a long time would have their passion for justice and mercy rekindled. So it's important for us to, to really begin at the beginning. You see Jesus in Genesis after sin enters the story and disarray happens, uh, God's redemptive purposes is laid out through him picking a person, a family, and building a people through him. And that person was named Abraham. And in Genesis 18, it says, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised to him. And he, it's, this is so, so vital. Abrahamic faith, which we belong to, we're no longer a part of the Mosaic Law. According to Paul's writing in Galatians 3, we're part of the Abrahamic faith. We're grafted into this blessing. Why was Abraham chosen? Why was he considered righteous? Why was he... Well, it was because the belief he had in God that showed itself through these two words righteousness and justice, tzedakah and mishpat. These two words in the Hebrew are joined together all the time, um, dozens and dozens of times throughout the Genesis story, the Exodus story, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets. You see the bio, the biblical authors um, kind of join these two phrases of tzedakah and mishpat, righteousness and justice. Righteousness means right relationships. It's our right relationship with God. It's our inward living. It's our right relationships with one another. Justice is our relationship to the world. It's our, it's our understanding of how we treat those who are the stranger, the outsider, the poor, and the marginalized. And this was central to the, the understanding within the Old Testament of who God was. Jessica Nicholas, in her book, God's Lo God Loves Justice, says, Western views of justice are primarily focused on how things should be done. Laws, rules, what should happen when laws are broken. In Hebrew thought, justice is focused on what life should be like. Justice in the Hebrew world was concerned not just with laws, 
but with enhancing all human life, especially the social world. And so just a few biblical references where this shows up. And there, like I said, there is dozens. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 33.5, he loves, here it is, righteousness and justice. Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Uh, The famous verse in Amos 5.24, But let justice roll down like water, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so when Israel neglected justice and righteousness is when they found themselves in exile, when they, as people who are rescued from slavery, found themselves being the oppressor. They found themselves removed from the land, from God's blessing. And while they're in exile, they kind of like, kind of go to God like, hey, what, what's up? Where are you at? We're still fasting. We're still following the feast. We're still trying our best to do these things. And Isaiah records God's response to their plea. Like, we're still fasting, which I think is interesting because we just talked about fasting. And that's what he says in Isaiah 58. God's response is, is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then, here it is, your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer and your and you will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. Isaiah, uh, this is such a powerful, vivid verse, and he's saying, listen, I'm not concerned with your rigid um, observance of a law or a festival. I am concerned with your heart. You have forgotten justice and mercy. And so a lot of times the messianic prophecies are tied in with this. I mean, listen to Isaiah's words in uh, verse 61. I'm sorry, chapter 61. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. This is a messianic prophecy. Because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness for the prisoners, to to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And so you might just be like, that's that's a lot of great Old Testament theology, but we're in a new covenant now, right? Like we, we know we're not, we're not saved by works, we're saved by 
um, grace by faith or by grace through faith. And so I think an appropriate question is, well, what does Jesus have to say about these prophetic utterances, this call back to justice and mercy? And I find this really interesting. When Luke opens up his gospel, after Jesus is born, becomes an adult, is baptized, the very first thing that Luke records Jesus doing is going into a synagogue, into his hometown of Nazareth. It says, Jesus went, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place. Think about this. There's, there's no chapters and verses and scrolls. So imagine that some minutes go by, and Jesus finds somewhere on the scroll this exact place he's wanting to read. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. And he began by saying to, to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 600 years prior, a prophet by the name of Isaiah recorded these words that their deliverance would come through a Messiah who would bring about good news for the poor, freedom for the captive. And Jesus finds that verse, reads it, rolls up the scroll, looks at everyone in that synagogue of his hometown and says, Today. This is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus goes on in his life and his teaching, moving towards those who society and religion had pushed out, and he makes it his mission. Why? Because Jesus didn't just come to die on a cross. Otherwise, that he could have done that earlier, but he spends three years of ministry doing what? Bringing about the heavenly reality of his kingdom on earth to the poor and the blind and the lame and the leper and the prostitute and the tax collector, those things that have been disjointed and out of order, he's coming and actively putting them back into order and calling it his kingdom. And he's inviting his followers to do the same. This is why he came. It is centralized. We can't have the cross and the kingdom as two separate things. These are intricately joined together. Listen to his critique of the Pharisees, those who followed the law rigidly, who did their best to live into what was, what was laid out. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. This is in a series of seven kind of woes or warnings Jesus is giving to the Pharisees. He says, listen, you guys tithe on your mint. Can you guys imagine that? Now, again, in the agricultural culture, this makes a little bit more sense. But he says, you, you guys tithe on everything. You give 10% of everything to the Lord. He's like, but you've forgotten the greater things, justice and mercy. And I love what he says right here. He says, you should have tithed. 
It's like you should have practiced those things. It's not a bad thing. You should have been doing this, but you can't do those things and then forget the more weightier things of the law, justice and mercy. One of Jesus' most famous teachings on this, in Matthew 25, he says, he gives this parable of, of this king. And he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see, Jesus is so intertwined with the poor and the stranger and the prisoner and the unclothed and the unhoused that he sees any sort of act of justice and mercy towards them as something he's receiving personally i don't think i fully grasp that because if i did my, my life, and I'm just being honest, would, would look different than how I conduct it. But for Jesus, this is inseparable. This is how you are to act. And what's so interesting, when he says, Whatever, whenever you're done to the least of these, did you know that list of describing prisoners, those who are poor, the least of these was describing the early Christians. He says, whatever you would do for them, you've done to me. And I think now what I think is so interesting is for many of us, many of us watching this, me preaching this, I don't, I'm not in that list. I'm not wondering where I'm going to get food and clothes, where I'm going to sleep. I'm not wondering if someone's going to visit me in prison. I'm not in that list. But Jesus was speaking about that list. This was his early church. These were his disciples. They would fill that list. And God forbid that those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus who are not in that list somehow disregard that list. That was the early church. And we were called to move towards them. Let's not be like the Israelites who left Egypt and left slavery and then all of a sudden found themselves oppressing their own people. This is why Jesus, or this is why Yahweh again and again in the Old Testament and Jesus fulfilling in the New Testament is calling people back to justice and mercy. Last verse 1 John 3.16 says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It's the gospel, right? We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, says, There is inequitable 
distribution of both goods and opportunities in this world. Therefore, if you have been assigned the goods of this world by God and you don't share them with others, it isn't just stinginess, it is injustice. For indeed, grace is the key to it all. It is not our lavish good deeds that produce, procure salvation, but God's lavish love and mercy. That is why the poor are as acceptable before God as the rich. It is the generosity of God, the freeness of his salvation, that lays the foundation for the society of justice for all. I think that I would love for us to conclude this series of not seeing justice and mercy as a part of a program of the church, this ornament that's hanging on the tree, if you will, but rather the very trunk of it. This is what we do. This is what we're called to. Um, a friend of mine, J.T. Thomas, uh, leads an organization called Civil Righteousness and works in Ferguson, Missouri, and deals with the gospel and how it works into even racial reconciliation in a really beautiful way. I want to uh, just point out something he uh, told me. He told me that a lot of people, when they talk about the Jesus movement um, and they talk about the civil rights movement, very rarely do they see them happening at the same time, but they did. And for him, he was telling me, he's like, as a black man in America, talking to my parents and grandparents, this was the renewal. The Jesus movement and the civil rights movement were not two separate movements. These were happening at the same time. And I think sometimes we forget that even the civil rights movement was led out of the church by a pastor. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, in, in, um, in one of his sermons, he says, By opening our lives to God and Christ, we become new creatures. This experience, which Jesus spoke of as the new birth, is essential if we are to be transformed nonconformists. Only through an inner spiritual transformation do we again gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving spirit. And I would just encourage us that we would find ourselves open to what the Holy Spirit might move us towards. And I know there's lots of questions. I know that you're like, well, where do I begin? Or, you know, I feel overwhelmed. Where You know, there's so many opportunities. And, I, and I've always just found a lot of comfort in Mother Teresa's quote. She says, if you can't feed 100 people, then feed just one. And one of the things that I love about watching the early church unfold in Acts is the unique leading of the Holy Spirit to, to people, to different regions, to different people groups, to different things. And um, I want to just highlight a few things that we're doing as a church right now. And then I also want to highlight a new thing that we're going to be partnering with. And my hope is that God stirs your heart towards justice and mercy, not towards a cause specifically, but that he would stir your heart towards a posture and that in your posture, then you would attach to something that is incredibly close to the heart of God. A couple of things um, that we partner with as a church. One is Generate Hope that helps in the rehabilitation of women rescued out of, out of uh, human trafficking here in San Diego. 
uh, organization we're just starting to partner with called Young Lives of women who have chosen, rather than having an abortion, to keep their baby, but all of a sudden are facing tremendous financial need, uh, fear and what to do and how they're going to work and provide childcare. This is a beautiful organization. Another one we work with is called Alternatives. Um, there is, uh, we, we are starting a relationship with an organization called Olive Crest that helps provide support for foster care families. So they can have a, a date night. Their kids can make sure that they have um, Christmas presents under the tree. And so a really beautiful partnership is beginning there. Uh, we work here in Encinitas with the CRC that works with people who are unhoused or can't afford food. And it's literally two blocks from where we're recording this right now at our chapel. Uh, we're going to be hosting another community breakfast, which is another beautiful expression of people sitting at the table together and breaking bread. Um, many more. There's going to be some trips coming up this year um, that are going to be really influential. And like I said, it's it's keeping your eyes and your heart open to, man, God, that I know this isn't right. Use me. Push me towards this. And... Um, and so one of the things that we've been talking with as a church is looking for opportunities specifically um, to partner with our brothers and sisters in Mexico because it's so close. And I was having a conversation with one of our council members, Bruce Elliott, and he um, does incredible work in Ukraine. He's like, hey, you, you need to hear what my daughter Sarah uh, is doing. And Sarah Overby and her family are part of uh, Light. And I've, I've, I've knew, I knew somewhat of what they were doing. But our conversation with her not only really illuminated the beautiful work she's already been doing for quite a long time, but a new opportunity that she's just become aware of that I thought could be a really amazing opportunity for our church. So Sarah's here with me. I'm going to invite her to come sit with me on the couch. Sarah, thanks for coming and being a part no of this worries. conversation. No worries. Thanks for having me. Um, can you... Can you just kind of help tell this story that, you know, we chatted on the phone and uh, just this really, this need that, you know, I think something that we could partner with and help fulfill, but I think the story is incredibly compelling. So mm -hmm. could you just tell that? Yeah. So I work um, in Mexico, mainly with high risk women and my path led to um, a refugee camp about seven miles from the border. Um, and it was, even though I was working in Mexico for some time, it really was eye-opening to me to see, um, I didn't realize just how large the issue was. Um, and basically the camp that I have begun working at um, is, it has about a thousand people, um, over a hundred people come a day. Um, and they are coming from Michoacan, Mexico mainly, where there's a lot of violence, um, all parts of um, all parts of Central America from Haiti. And they're coming to this refugee camp, um, hoping to gain asylum to the United States. And about two months ago when I began working there, um, asylum to the U S closed and shut down. Um, and for the pastor who runs this refugee camp, he's been running it for over 10 years. It's, he's never seen this happen. And so basically all of these people who are arriving with no, they come with just the clothes on their back. Mm -hmm. And they're arriving and they have no money, no support system, no family. Most of them can't even work in Mexico because they're not from Mexico. Um, and they're arriving to hear the news that you cannot seek asylum. And so they're really stuck. 
And so that's um, become really a massive crisis um, with there's a growing number of people still coming and they're sort of pooling in these refugee camps where they have nowhere to go mm-hmm. um, and they're stuck without resources or options. Wow. Um, tell me a little bit about um, Gustavo, who's the, the pastor there and like kind of his kind of what how he's responded to this growing need and yeah, so um, Pastor Gustavo, who's actually a lawyer, um, he has for the last 10 years, he actually, when primarily it was Haitian refugees that were coming, um, he made his sanctuary, it's his church sanctuary that he opened his doors and he felt that God said to him 10 years ago, open your doors to these refugees and never close your doors again to them. Wow. And so he was the only refugee camp that remained open all through covid because he felt that God said you are never to turn away the sojourner, the asylum seeker, um, that they are God's people and to always give them a place to go. And so he, um, he does all the asylum paperwork um, for them. And before um, asylum was closed, he was getting about 70 to 80% um, of people were gaining asylum. And he was able to take them over the border with papers. Um, but now, as this is closed, um, he actually has been working to build another um, facility for them to sleep. But he um, has kept his doors open and he has over a thousand people there. He feeds them two meals a day. And every time I see him, I ask how he's doing. He says, I'm just believing for a God sized miracle. Wow. Um, and he said, God's just said not to close my doors. And I have been there in the morning, um, walked into the church sanctuary, and there are people all over the ground sleeping on towels. They've run out of cots, um, sleeping on blankets. Whole families just get one blanket, and they have just a bucket where they can get clean water for their family. And that's all they have is a bucket, a few bits of clothes, no toys for kids. um, And they're there, and he's just continuing to feed them two meals a day, trusting God weekly that he's just going to provide for them. Um, and um, just being faithful and obedient to what God's asked him to do. Yeah. One of the things you're telling me is, as you're seeing this, and like, what do you need? You know, and mm-hmm. the thing, um, maybe I'm just gonna share a little bit about that. What were the things that he kind of pointed out that were just needs? Uh... Yeah. So um, he's really a humble man. It's hard to, you know, I, I in the beginning I said, how can we support? And he's like, just come, you know, um, one of the big things for him is just for, for these people to see, it gives them hope and it gives them joy when they see people from the outside come and say, we haven't forgotten you. We know you're here. We care. Um, and so he had, first thing he asked for is he said, you know, after, after sort of when COVID hit, you know, the groups that might've come to do crafts and things with the kids don't come anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and so these kids are sitting, you know, all day without toys, sitting on a cot, and um, they don't have anything to do. And so he had asked, you know, if you know any groups or churches that would love to come and like do things with the kids, that would be amazing. Um, And then also he feeding these people um, is a huge burden for him. Um, So he feeds, you know, the two meals um, every day and he finds sources for fruits and vegetables, but um, you know, protein, was one is one of his big needs that he talked to us about, and then um, just like blankets, shoes for kids. A lot of the kids I see them, their shoes are broken, or they're wearing shoes that are like three sizes too big. Wow. Um, and there's a lot of it's all dirt there, so it's like glass, and it's really not a safe place for kids to run around without shoes. 
Um, yeah, and blankets because they have no heat there. They keep their lights off to save on electricity, and so there's no heat. So in the winter in this space, it'll be very cold. Um, and there he has way more people than he normally does. So, you know, blankets and things like that. So here's, um, Jesus told me that I was just, it was right after we just talked about hospitality and how the Greek word literally means love of the stranger. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, my gosh, I don't, I don't know what else to do other than like respond to this. Um, and I want to extend this, uh, this is something as a church we would respond with. So practically speaking, after our conversations together, here's here's what I would like is kind of like a faith goal for us as a church. And I'd love to start collecting these things. You can bring them by the chapel Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. You can bring them to church. Um, these are some things that would be provide some immediate relief to, to people. Um, I would love to provide 500 to 1,000 blankets as we get closer to towards the winter. Um, 300 to 500 pairs of kids' shoes. They could be new. Um, or they could be used, but within that are good condition. Um, I would love to raise $5,000 or more uh, to give to Pastor Gustavo to buy protein-rich food to help supplement the, the fruits and veggies that they're able to give them. Um, and one of the, the big requests that he has is just people just to come. And so um, Matt Johnson, uh, his email should be up on the screen right now, is going to be kind of helping coordinate those teams. Uh, we're going to be doing a scouting trip here in the next few weeks, but our hope is by um, end of November, December, is to bring a group uh, from Light Church down to this refugee camp um, and just to love on the kids, do crafts, play sports, um, provide laughter, hope, anything else that they're needing, um, and remembering that this is this is the reality. There are people less than an hour away from from us right now. And for us, based on what we've talked about today, um, this is a gospel issue. This is a this is how God has moved towards us in our need, and we ought to move towards others in their need as well. Mm-hmm. Especially for those God has placed resources um, into our our path. And so, um, Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. If you'd like to give, um, if you go onto the giving page of Light. Um, we'll already give towards this, but if you'd like to give specifically towards this um, thing, just look for the tab that just says Refugee Camp, and 100% of the proceeds of that will go directly towards uh, this need. Um, and then as a family, I'd invite, I mean, especially if you have roommates, if you have kids, things like this, um, make this something you do together. Um, go and, and, and buy the blankets, go and gather the shoes, uh, do that lemonade stand we talked about last week and have the money go towards helping provide um, for just healthy meals for um, for these kids and for these families that are, this is their reality um, right now. And, and something else I'll just encourage you guys with before we before we close is I know we just presented a very tangible kind of like here's a need here's you know here's a tangible way to act. But I would also encourage you um, to not discredit the power of prayer. Um, that prayer is one of the most powerful acts of justice and mercy we can do. And, and to, to never feel like, what can I do? Like, but you can be moving into that. And as you pray, listen 
to the Holy Spirit. Maybe he would direct you in a certain in a certain way. I love talking to Sarah about the and really your whole family, like how God has just led you guys mm-hmm. to the, your brother to Africa and your yeah. dad in Ukraine and you in Mexico. And God's like led you to unique things, mm-hmm. um, listening to the Holy Spirit and then practicing faithful obedience to what the Holy Spirit is leading you to and guiding you to. Um, I would encourage you to do some practical things. Don't compare and contrast causes and callings. Don't, don't judge other people who don't share your passion for what you're passionate about. And at the same time, uh, don't kind of categorize things like that. Again, being faithful to obedience to what the Holy Spirit's brought in front of you. Um, and then just start creating margin in your finances, your time, and your relationship. Be ready and willing when God presents those to do that. Um, and just yoking with Jesus um, in this and recognizing that God's already, as you're watching this, God is already present in Tijuana at, at, with Pastor Gustavo in that refugee camp. We're not going and bringing anything but rather going and partnering with the the work and activity of god that is already going on there um and the other thing i would just encourage you whether you join us coming to mexico or you you have that thing that god is, is burning in your heart um never go primarily with the posture that you are giving and contributing but always go and just look for what you're going to receive mm-hmm. that jesus identifies with those right um, and so oftentimes the mistake is that we come in thinking we're the Savior when the Savior actually identifies with those we're giving towards. And so we need to go and do that. Um, and let all of this that we've talked about, all of this that's going on, let it just be shaped uh, for me just by the cross. This is like the more I look intently into the work of Jesus on the cross, the more I, I ask that the Holy Spirit would form me into this cruciformed life giving myself over for for those. So I, I pray that you join us in the work that that we're going to be doing. Email Matt if you have questions, if you'd like to go on the trip. Start figuring out ways you can give towards that. Um, and or uh, the things that God has put on, on your heart or the other things that we partner with at LIPE. Let's be a community, a church of justice and mercy. Um, sorry, would you mind just praying for us? I would. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much um, just for this word. God, um, your desire is to see redemption come to this world. Yes, God. You are redeeming right now, actively redeeming all of the broken parts of this world back to yourself. And I thank you that you use us for that. You use us as vessels of redemption, Mm. that we are part of that redemptive story. Lord, and I just thank you that you are opening up opportunities in front of us. And I pray that as each of us get more involved and we open our lives and that you would speak to each of us directly how you are wanting to us, us to each be involved in that redemptive story that you are creating here on earth, Lord. I thank you that you're, we are part of your kingdom coming to earth, Lord. And um, I just pray over every heart that's listened to this, Lord. And I just pray that um, we would be obedient of what you ask of us, Mm. that we would walk in obedience and not out of fear, but that we would walk with joy um, as you ask us to make sacrifices and to care for our brothers and sisters around the world. In your name, amen. Amen, amen. Thanks for watching, guys. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.